Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, bird is the word as I'll be telling you about the Great Emu War of 1932. The emus were 20,000 strong, but the other side had machine guns and opposable thumbs. Listen to find out who wins. With war comes death, so be aware that this episode includes conversations about animal calls and be ready for foul language and curse words. Craig. Damn it, Craig. All right, hold on. Glad you could finally join us. Yeah, Yeah. really. Fuck you, Craig. Fuck you, Craig. Fuck you, Craig. All right. I'm pushing the recording button. Hold on. Oh, I already did that a while ago. (laughs) Well, I had to deal with Craig first before I could push the recording button. (laughs) That's That's fine. It's it's my problem if I have to put them together. (laughs) Yep. All right. We're back. For another Ooh. recording of yeah. the human exception. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the most lackadaisical. Oh yeah, I've ever heard. <laughs> oh my god. All right. Well, I guess I'm going first this time. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> no, this is a good thing because I know what your topic is because you told us. So I'm very excited. I'm just real sad that we got to go out on a bummer like mine. So I'm <laughs> trying to get. I was totally thinking about that. <laughs> about everybody else's. That way, then I can bring the entire thing just down. Awesome. Hey guys, we're the human exception. We're here to make you get sad and stuff. Yeah, we have enough of that already this year. That's what content warnings are for. Oh, geez. You will be sad. You may not yeah. want to listen to this. All right. Well, there's a little bit of sad stuff in mine, but I back it up with awesome stuff and memes, so it'll be good. <laughs> so today I'm going to be talking about the Great Emu War. It's the war that Australia had against emus, and, well, they lost. So let's get into that. <laughs> so after World War One, the Australian government tried to find things to do with all their veterans once they came home. They're like, oh, fuck, well, you know, we don't need an army anymore. So basically from 1959, they started this whole, like, soldier settlement scheme that began to be rolled across, like, all of the states. So by 1920, the government had purchased twenty or 90,000 hectares of lands for these veterans, but they still needed more. And so they started placing the remaining soldiers in some pretty marginal areas of Perth and Western Australia. This made things tough because setting up a prosperous farm with little to no experience in a good er- good area is no small feat, let alone in an area where the land is barely usable and all you've done is war for the last couple of years. Oh yeah, and the Great Depression was just around the corner, so <laughs> 19- 1929 <laughs> that just made things better. This is bad suck all right? the way around. So like the only thing they could, Australia. <laughs> the, only, the only thing they could grow on the land with any moderate amount of success was wheat, which then of course <laughs> the depression, uh, the prices oh, no. plummeted. So the government promised like, okay, okay, we're gonna subsidize for your wheat. You know, this is totally gonna be cool. And then they never did. So of the nearly five thousand veterans that participated in this program, very few had any success at all. And this was made only doubly worse when 
In the, in the drought-heavy summer of 1932, 20,000 emus began to arrive. I... Excuse me? <laughs> so, emus migrate re- regularly after breeding season. They pretty much, like, go across the continent. And that's the kind of big thing that they do every year. Well, when they came across this beautifully cleared land with all this water supply and all this food that's just growing there, well, the emus saw a good place to live. So very few people could afford to build any sort of fences to keep the birds at bay. And those that did were even further frustrated because the emus broke these fences and then let rabbits in. Oh my god. (laughs) The farmers pleaded with the government and, well, the government was completely unwilling to admit that any culpability on their behalf and didn't want to provide any assistance and instead just pointed the finger at the emu, blaming them for everything. Some of the ex-soldiers were sent to meet with the Minister of Defense, Sir George Pierce. So the minister agreed with conditions that they were going to provide some guns and to only be used by military personnel and troop transport was to be financed by the Western Australian government. Farmers would provide some food and accommodation and payment and ammunition. What's accommodation and payment for the ammunition? Yes. And the minister also thought that this was a good idea and that it would be good for practice. Target practice, oh that is. Oh, God. So many people speculate that this may have just been a method to kind of calm things down with the already angry farmers. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll send some people out there to deal with it. Well, the military would be dispatched, armed with automatic weapons and a thirst for vengeance. This would be the beginning of the Great Emu War. And there's a trailer. What? <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god, I'm so excited. It's <laughs> amazing. All right, please take a minute or two and watch this video. Oh. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. It's an eight foot tall bird. You don't need to do sneaking. <laughs> Tweet Jesus. Oh my god. I brought out my tummy gun. Oh. I. Uh. Okay. A little literal video trailer of the Emu War it was like a news report or wherever it was done in the time. There's a video on YouTube. I will link it in my note, my show notes. And yeah, it's a good sense. That is, it's like its own parody. And yet. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the whole army of three men, um, a pickup truck, and two machine guns with ten thousand rounds, which was about half of the number of emus that were out there, were set out to help these farmers. Sure, some of the vet farmers farmed, joined in, but it was only Major G.P.W. Meredith and his two gunners officially at war. The assault was set to begin in October 1932, but the weather caused this delay to be delayed until November 2nd, and they were woefully underprepared. You see, emus aren't just large turkeys. They stand at an average height of about 6 feet 4 inches, and they can run up to 50 kilometers an hour or 31 miles per hour. Nope. Instant out. No. <laughs> they have the strongest <laughs> legs of any animal and can easily shred apart metal fences with their talons. And as the three Aussie hunters would soon find out, emus can take roughly five bullets before realizing that they've been shot and ten rounds before they finally die. Oh my god. Oh my god. So let's talk about some emus. So emus are native to Australia um, and they are literally living dinosaurs. They have been around for millions of years. And frankly, they're pretty damn cool. They have second largest bird on Earth, which is, you know, just after the ostrich. And the emu even features on the Australian's coat of arms. They killed 
their country's bird. I mean, was it on the coat of arms then, though? Yes, it was. It's been on Uh, since 1912 or something, I think. Um, Yeah, and that is the, like, Ministry Ministry of Defense coat of arms. So not only that, it's the Ministry of Defense who approved the murder of emus. Oh, my God. It is also on their 50-cent coin. I Amazing. Wow. It's a kangaroo and an emu. Uh, yeah. So emus have this whole child care thing thing figured out. The paired birds just build a nest together in which the female lays between five to fifteen large green eggs before just wandering off to find another baby daddy. And and emu eggs are fucking cool. Like they're bright emerald green. I don't know if you've ever seen them. I posted some pictures mm-hmm. here. Whoa. Oh, whoa. Also, they're fucking huge. Holy shit. So they're about five and a half inches long. (laughs) So, dang. It's like two and and a half chicken eggs. (laughs) And it gets better. Oh, God. The babies are so fucking cute. Stop it. I can't. Mm. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay, I want one. They're so fuzzy. (gasps) Fuzzy. Yes. So. They're freaking adorable. And probably delicious. They are. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, so after the female leaves, the male incubates the eggs for 55 days, not eating, drinking, or defecating, defecating, and almost never leaving the nest during this time. He loses up to 8 kilograms or 18 pounds during this time. When the eggs finally hatch, the male stays with them for two years, defending them and teaching them how to find food. While foraging, they softly whistle at each other to keep track of the family. Chicks become mature, sexually mature at 18 months. So yeah, moms don't need to do anything but lay the eggs. And then dad hatches the eggs and raises the babies. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> Holy crap. Um, so there was once three species of emu, and now we only have one. Tasmania is an island state just south of Australia, which was once flush with emus just like Australia is still today. And Tasmania had its own subspecies that today is extinct. It's not clear exactly what caused that extinction, but it can be heavily implied that colonists who loved the meat of emus and kangaroos did a lot of the damage, if not be the direct cause. The last wild emu in Tasmania died in 1865, and the last captive bird died not much longer after in 1873. It's hard to not compare numbers. In just 25 years, European colonists inhabiting the island an entire species went extinct. Meanwhile, the Aboriginal people managed to coexist with them for 40,000 years. Good job, white people. Uh, Can we, like, not make something go extinct? That'd be great. Yeah, I wouldn't hold your breath on that one. Um, (laughs) So while that species is gone, now um, there is still hope. The birds have been reintroduced to Tasmania in recent years, so now they're starting to try and repopulate the island with emus. Let's get back to the war. November 2nd, the war begins. When the troops arrived in Campion, they spotted a mob of 50 emus. The birds were out of range, so the locals tried to help herd them into an ambush. But the birds just split into smaller groups. They attempted an assault anyways and was completely ineffective. The birds just staying just out of range of the guns. They attempted a second assault, which supposedly killed a number of birds. Quote. (laughs) So, by the end of that day, they had managed to kill just over a dozen emu. November 4th, the Meredith and his troops prepared an ambush near the dam where they knew about a thousand emus were heading. This time they waited for the birds to get into range before opening fire. But the gun jammed after only 12 birds were killed and the remainder scattered and escaped. There were no more birds sighted that day. Now an emu has um, the reputation of being a really dumb bird. 
So for a surprisingly dumb bird, it, it seems to be holding their own in this war. Oh my gosh. So let's talk about the intelligence of emus. An ornithologist was once asked, what is the dumbest bird? And he said, that would be the emu. And the next day's headlines read, Canadian researcher named National Bird of Australia the world's most stupid bird. This did not make this guy popular in Australia. <laughs> but his position was buoyed when he appeared on an Australian radio show and one caller related a story of being in the outback with aboriginals who told, who told him if he laid down on his back and raised one foot, the emus would come to investigate, thinking he was one of them. <laughs> and so as you do obviously you go to reddit to get some good anecdotes and um this guy had a story to share a good water villainy <laughs> emus are very stupid and ours were no exception we had a breeding pair that never seemed to do the deed one day however i went to the pen to find one nesting i was very excited we waited for a couple months before deciding to check on the egg but then when we did it was a fucking milk carton <laughs> oh <laughs> my god <laughs> Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> you just have this picture of this emu sitting on a milk carton. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, so <laughs> Tim, Tim Nielsen is the supervisor of birds at the Royal Adelaide Zoo. Also believes that emus could be the contender for one of the dumbest birds on the planet. And he has some stories to back this up, including one that a colleague of his told him about. So his colleague was driving along a dusty road and noticed that an emu was running parallel with his car in the fence. Out of curiosity, he accelerated ahead, pulled over, and continued to observe the emu, which by the stage was several hundred meters away. The emu continued to run towards the car, and upon reaching it, proceeded to run straight into it, knocking itself out in the process. <laughs> oh my god. So yeah, not very promising about the intelligence there. And it's often said that emu brains are about the size of a marble, and this is responsible for their low intelligence. Oh, Poor baby. <laughs> but I think we know that size isn't everything. Oh my god. So a study was published in 2016 by the National Academy of Sciences that decided to take a look at cl a closer look at how we judge intelligence in birds. So emu brains, for example, comprise 0.06% of their body mass, where human brains is 2%. So what they did is they took a bunch of animals and they literally counted the neurons, including a bunch of birds. And well, the results weren't too surprising. So here's a chart listing the neurons that they found. Obviously, human is way above everything else. We've got 86 billion neurons, where the next thing that follows up is 10.95 for a baboon. Oh, yeah, so you see there's some, there's some low numbers there. One thing we can take a look at, though, is density. Oh. So when you look at it per, like, the density of these neurons, so, yeah, neurons per gram of the brain, we find that birds rank quite a bit higher than a lot of creatures do. Right. Like, though owl monkeys have the same size as a brain as a raven, the concentration of raven is quite a bit higher in comparison. In fact, most birds pack in way more neurons per gram of brain tissue than other animals. And this higher density allows them to have more connections, increasing the capacity for information and processing in a very small container. Songbird and parrot brains accommodate two to four times more neurons than the rodent brains of a similar weight, around twice as many as some primate brains. And in fact, on that list, humans rank even below squirrels and emu. So an emu has 61 neurons per gram in their brain, and humans are 57. Gray parrots are like the freaking weirdest... Oh my god. I fell down a YouTube hole one time of watching oh. at like African parrots talk. What, what's, the gray, what's the gray parrot, yeah. the one that was famous? 
Oh, oh, that the late the lady had she wrote a book about him. Yeah. Um, oh shoot, what was his name? I'll find it. Anyway, that's, that's definitely going to be an episode at some point. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was such a good story. Yeah. All right, so let's get back to the war. In the following days, Meredith moved south with the birds, where the birds were supposedly more tame. But they didn't have much success there either. And by the fourth day, the army observers noted that each pack seemed to have its own leader, a big black plume bird, which stands fully six feet high and keeps watch while its mates carry out the work of destruction and warns them of their approach. (laughs) Jeez. At one point, Meredith even mounted one of the guns to the truck, which really didn't help as the truck couldn't keep up with the birds and the ride was too rough to really get off any shots. (laughs) Bump, 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 bump. Oh, they're getting away. So by November 8th, six days after the first engagement, 2,500 rounds had been fired. And a number, the number of birds that were dead was uncertain. One account said 50, but others ranged from 200 to 500. And this was as per the settlers, though. But Meredith's report did say that their men didn't suffer any casualties. So that was a bonus. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh, Jesus. Summarizing the calls, ornithologist Dominique Servanty commented, The machine gunner's dream of point-blank fire into serried masses of emus was soon dissipated. The emu command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics. The army soon split into innumerable small units that made made use of the military equipment uneconomic. A crestfallen field force therefore withdrew from the combat area after about a month. So the Australian House of Representatives discussed the operation and following a bunch of negative news coverage, including claims that only a few emu had died, Pierce was forced to withdraw the military personnel and the guns that day. As the war ended, public sympathy moved to the emu. Media reports showing fleeing or dying emus revolted the public and there were even protests back in England at the ongoing emu war. The Australian Parliament questioned Pierce over the tactics and asked if there was a better way to solve the problem. One member of Parliament, Parliament even asked if they were going to give away med- medals of honor for this war. <laughs> oh my god. Clearly they were not impressed by attempts so far. Uh, Pierce assured Parliament, Parliament, though, that they were acting humanely and the tactic of mass calling was required. And he requested another chance to defeat the emus. <laughs> <laughs> I must fight my mortal enemy. So after they withdrew, Meredith compared the emus to Zulus, commenting on their striking maneuverability even when badly wounded. Quote, If we had a military division with with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with with a invulnerability of tanks. They are like Zulus, whom even dum-dum bullets could not stop. (laughs) So the raising of farms by the emus continued, and again, farmers pleaded for support. The Premier of Western Australia, James Mitchell, gave his strong support to bring the military back. Meanwhile, the official report for the first round from the base commander was issued, stating that 300 emus had been killed. So using this report, on November 12th, Pierce approved resumption of military efforts and defended the decision in the Senate by stating that the soldiers were necessary to combat such a serious agricultural threat. Although the military agreed to lend the guns, the government expected them to provide their own personnel. So again, Meredith was placed in the field due to the apparent lack of experienced gunners in the state. On November 13th, they found some success over the first two days with an estimated of 40 emus killed. By November 15th, they proved to be far less successful. But by by December 2nd, the soldiers were killing about 100 emus per, per week. In December 1932, the word of the emu war had spread, reaching the UK. Some conservationists there protested the call as an extermination of the rare emu. 
December 10th, Meredith was recalled and reported 986 kills with the use of 9,860 rounds, a rate of exactly 10 rounds per confirmed kill. <laughs> and in addition, reported that 2,500 birds had been wounded and probably would have died in their injuries later. Jeez. But yeah, they only had less than 1,000 confirmed kills out of 20,000. Good, good Just, job, guys. Yeah, you failed your war. Yeah. So, despite the problem with the call, um, farmers would again request military assistance in 1934, 1943, and 1948, only to be turned down by the government. Instead, a bounty system was instigated in 1923 and continued to be effective. They just raised the bounty as years went on. 57,000 bounties were claimed over six months in 1934. Oh, it, wow. should be noted, though, that, it should be noted, though, that some farmers were smart enough to breed emus and collect a bounty on the birds that they'd raise. <laughs> but that was bound to happen. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Um, so throughout the 1930s and beyond, exclusion barrier fencing became very popular and effective ways of keeping emus and other wildlife out of the agricultural area. Um, some farmers wanted them exterminated using light bombs dropped from below flying planes or by machine guns in the same way that was done in 1932. But they just never got that support. Oh, my goodness. In November 1950, Hugh Leslie raised the issue of emus in federal parliament and urged Army Minister Josiah Francie to release a quantity of 303 ammunition for the armies to use, or from the army to use for the farmers. And the minister approved the release of 500,000 rounds. So, yeah, they'll give you a bounty for them. We'll throw some ammo at you, but we're not going to do anything about this. Jeez. Yearly, kill, uh, yearly kills of emus in Western Australia for bounty payments vary from about 5,000 to nearly 40,000 a year. So, But the emus, however, remain plentiful, and small parties may be seen within 15 to 20 kilometers or 9 to 12 miles of Perth, the capital of the state. And uh, here is uh, a picture of one of the uh, news articles from, I think it's 1953. <laughs> New strategy in the war on the emu. <laughs> Oh, by a special correspondent. Oh, my God. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, so that was the war. But, you know, there's some other things that happened with emus over time. So one thing that was super big was the great emu boom of the 90s. I don't know if any of you guys remember this at all, where everyone decided they wanted mm -hmm. to farm emus. <clears throat> okay, so Maybe. <laughs> I think once I start talking about it, you're going to start recalling at a point that everyone started getting emus and now you'll connect mm -hmm. some dots. That's what I noticed anyways. Um, so yeah, emu was billed as America's next red meat in the 1990s. Environmentalists touted it as equal-friendly and nutritionists gushed over the health benefits and chefs praised its tender meat. But emus never really took off, which makes sense because they're flightless birds. And like the kangaroo, though, people from the up over had a hard time as seeing the exotic birds as food. So this made the market unstable and really unreliable. It didn't help that the knowledge about farming these animals was extremely lacking. The facilities capable and willing to process the meat was very limited. There are only about 13,000 emus in the U.S., which is a 72% decrease over the last, from the last 10 years. Meanwhile, bovine is going strong with 29 million, and even exotic peacocks outnumber emus 3 to 1 in the United States. Whoa. Jesus. So one emu yields 25 pounds of meat and two gallons of oil, which is used to make a skin salve in some products. The large eggs are coveted by, ar by artists and make an omelet about the size of a dozen chicken eggs. 
And while it takes five acres to raise just one beef cow and calf, it takes less than three acres to raise an emu. Um, emu meat is rich in myoglobin, which is what makes red meat red, and consequently it makes it taste very similar to beef, but it also has a low fat content similar to chicken. So really it's the best of both worlds. So why did it fail? Mostly it's marketing. The American Emu Association, which is a fucking thing, um, <laughs> says that while they took out ads in farm magazines, they just couldn't fight the monolith that is the cattle industry. And due to the limited processing plant, it made the emu not cheap at $25 to $30 a pound, where beef is like $8 a pound. Oof. Not that it's doing much better in Australia. Across the entire continent, there are less than 300 birds on farms. It's not great in India either, who bought into the mad rush only to find few buyers and ultimately caused many farmers to just abandon the birds in the wild rather than pay to feed them. And now we turn to Reddit for another interesting anecdote. <laughs> this guy um, deleted his account or whatever, so I don't know who it was. So, too mysterious guy on the internet. Thank you for your story. Um, there was a lot of emu experiments in the late 80s where I'm from, north central Arkansas, or Judsonia to be precise. Might have been the early 90s, not sure exactly. I don't know how it got started, but the locals got the idea that emus were miracle birds, and this get-rich scheme started to spread. Kind of like the Beanie Babies thing, except with large, flightless birds that would kick the shit out of you and your dog. At some point, the emu market crashed, and all the local farmers were left with these expensive-ass monster alien birds. I don't know why the market crashed, or why there was even a market to begin with. Nonetheless, people lost their life savings in these prickly-headed mutant turkeys. You couldn't pay anyone enough to take a live one off your hands. An elder at my dad's church doubled down on the emu craze. I think he was left with about 2,000 of these motherfuckers. So what do you do with 2,000 dinosaur birds that eat as much as a small horse every day? You go to fucking war. Only not with guns, because 2,000 shotgun con- shotgun shells cost a fuck ton of money to a broke-ass emu farmer. So yeah, the church had an emu war to save the elder's farm. It was a long and bloody battle. Miraculously, no humans were lost in the struggle. And the community all got in with baseball bats and other melee weapons to do the job. Oh no. Are you kidding me? That's so nope. fucked up. Ugh. But the fallen emus were shipped away to a dog food factory, so they got used in the end. But yeah, it was brutal. Um, there were some parts that I... Exe- I removed from that just because it was really violent uh but yeah Yeah. a bunch of church fair and people decided to melee a bunch of emus decided to beat the shit beat to death one of god's creatures with their own hands cool hypocrisy good job i just have no idea how they got out of there with no injuries like an emu will fuck you up (laughs) like right right then again, this is a comment from Reddit, who so who this knows what Reddit, the fuck's so, going on. Yeah, chances so, are yeah. some some idiot got like drunk and then ran at it with a baseball bat and realized that thing would eat his eyeballs and then he ran away. <laughs> uh, well, it's like I ended up coming across this story while I was looking at other Reddit anecdotes, and I was like, th- like I need to find some sort of thing to prove that there's any sort of evidence to this. And I did find that indeed Arkansas, the University of Arkansas, has a whole bunch of research on emus. Um, and then of course that's how I found out about the great emu boom in the '90s. So it's like, okay, there's some. There's something that could potentially be real here, so not I'm sure. Cool, 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 cool. But not everyone hates the emus. <laughs> the ab- the cool Aboriginals cool. revere emus and frequently include them in their stories. From those that survive, we know that there were a handful of different beliefs among the Aboriginal tribes. 
Beliefs is far too simple of a word, though, to sum up a complex concept that is a blend of lifestyle, religion, and culture. But one, one common word that you'll see that describes these systems is the dreaming. So within the dreaming, there are hundreds of stories may take place in the plane of the end of the everyone, a world inhabited by ancestral figures, often heroic with supernatural abilities, but not to be confused with gods. So among these are a plethora of tales about animalist ancestors, including many above the emu. One story in particular goes, long ago, there was a cat named Jutach who was married to an emu called Wage. One day, Wardu, the wombat, paid a visit to Wage while Juchek was out hunting. Wardu was secretly in love with Wage, and she was tempted by his, by his charms. At sundown, Wage told Wardu to leave before Jutek returned, or he would kill them both in a jealous rage. However, before Wardu left, he painted Wage with, with a precious ochre, red ochre paint that was used for special ceremonies. When Jutek returned, he asked Wage why she was decorated in his precious paint, and who gave it to her. And she told him that she found it, but he knew that she was lying, as he'd recognized Wardu's track leaving the camp. Jutek pretended to believe her and asked her to build a fire for the cold night ahead. When the fire was ablaze, he grabbed Wage and threw her into the flames. With the strength of, of her powerful legs, she jumped in high into the sky and then never returned. Now in the dark sky, if you look up the Milky Way, you can see her as a dark patch between the stars, and the, which is known to the Aboriginal people as Wage Moore. And I got pictures. So this is kind of um, some Aboriginal art. Oh, cool. That's really neat. And this is how they see the emu in the sky. Oh, that's cool. Oh, wow. That's pretty fucking sweet. That's really beautiful. Right? So yeah, the Aboriginals love them. Like they they're very much part of their culture. They use their feathers to make like sneaking shoes for hunting. And you know, the oils are very prized and used in rituals and same with the meat. Like it's a very important part of the Aboriginal culture. So obviously white people are gonna fuck it up. So in recent years, the EB war has become a popular meme. And in 2020, even inspired a video game entitled The Emu War. <laughs> um, the Emu War has been referenced in various memes and it's spiked around mid-2010. And I have some memes to share with you. See, now I'm curious. <laughs> oh my god, you're right. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> that, that bottom one <laughs> Emus in Australian textbooks just a forever scream. <laughs> so yeah, there's lots of great memes, <laughs> which I'll post on the uh, website, of course. But uh, yeah, if you just do a Google search, it's fun time. <laughs> so the future of emus. So while the emu has endured for billions of years, this there could be an end, an end to the site. An upgrade and extension of a vermin control fence running across Western Australia known as the State Barrier Fence is nearing completion. When finished, it will stretch coast to coast, completely cutting off the emu migration route. Imagine thousands of emus stuck behind a fence, their migration route blocked by wire and steel posts. Imagine them dying of starvation, thirst, or exhaustion. Here's a, uh, here's a picture of the fence. Now, this fence has been around for about 100 years now, and now they're just going to the final like legs of completing it and cutting it completely off. Um, prior to this, there's gaps in the fence that, you know, the animals could go through, but yeah, they won't be for much longer if the government continues its plans. Hmm. And here's a picture of emus having to walk along this fence. Jeez. But aren't they afraid they're just going to wipe them out completely? No, not really. (laughs) Um, so before the settle 
settlement of Australia's west, emus moved as they needed, southwest towards the coast and sometime in the winter, northeast in the summer, or the other way around if the rains so dictated. In some years, thousands joined forces to the journey together, forming one of nature's greatest uh, spectacles. They faced dangers, of course, natural predators and the aboriginals who found, found many creative ways of capturing and hunting the emu. But the aboriginals respected their prey. Among some groups, when a young hunter took an emu for the first time, he, his, his comrades would make him lie on the lifeless body, thanking it for nourishing them. Others taught that the yolk, uh, that the yolk of the emu egg was responsible for the sun's first rising. They took only what they needed, just as the birds themselves took only the plants, grubs, and insects to sustain them. A balance was set out in the dream time. But European settlers, however, were different. They cleared the land, planted wheats, and so the emu, who could only see this new crop plant as just a tucker brass basket ripe for the picking, well, became the enemy, and that's where we get the war. Since then, Australians, Australia's emus have faced many other shootings, even poisonings, yet they still managed to gather in huge numbers in some years. But this new fence, reinvented, reinforced, and running without end or breakage could be their undoing. Following an environmental review period and sub- subsequent approval by the Minister of Environment in April 15, 2019, the construction of the fence, fence of this began in May 23, 2019. The fence is also going to do a lot more damage than just make the emu's lives difficult. This is a multi-million dollar project. It's a 490 kilometer extension. I don't know what that is in America. Sorry. It's, um, <laughs> it's long. Big. <laughs> yeah, big. <laughs> so the extension will cut through the largest intact temperate woodland forest on the earth, the great oh, western geez. woodlands. Um, the government's under pressure from the farmers will argue that they're removing threats to stock and crops. But they must acknowledge, however, that they're creating another potentially much greater long-term threat to native flora and fauna. Peer-reviewed research suggests that the barrier fence is likely to increase fox and cat numbers by excluding dingoes and fragments of populations of native stop seed dispersal. Emus inadvertently disperse native seeds because they eat fruits from a range of native plants. Emus are estimated to transport, transport seeds from 12 to more than 200 plant species depending on the region. Emus travel long distances, and by and by restricting their natural movements with this fence, it could also just dis- prevent the dispersal of these seeds. So, in, as- in absence of this dispersal, plant species may decline across large regions. Isolated populations with no source of replenishment may die out entirely, and this is particularly concerning for the future because many species species need to alter their ranges due to global warming. Plants that no longer have the ability to travel long distances inside an emu may not survive accelerating rates of climate change because they cannot keep up with the shift in climate. Hmm. That all feels like a duh moment to me. Yeah. 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 So the, the, like the whole guess of like the cost of this to farmers being damaged, you know, by migrating emails once every five to 10 years will be, lo- be completely dwarfed by the expense of building the stupid fence mm-hmm. and never mind the like complete impact to the ecosystem. So there's anecdotal evidence from people who maintain the state barrier fence. A large number of animals are dying along the fence lines. Mm-hmm. The um, southwest of Western Australia is typically much more wet than, wet than the inland Western Australia. And thousands of animals are predicted to die along the fence lines each year, trying to access more fertile habitats, particularly during major droughts. So imagine being on one side of this fence and there's water on the other side and you can't get through it. But That's this, it. we are doing, yeah. Australia is dooming itself to having like flying dingoes. <laughs> so the Southwest, 
Speaking of dingoes, the Southwest dingo fence hasn't at all stopped the dingoes. And the rabbit-proof fence never stopped the movement of rabbits. (laughs) So really, this is just super shitty. Like, a bunch of stuff I've ended up finding out about. It's like all these, um, you know, wildlife conservation programs and stuff that are just like, dude, did you do any sort of cost-benefit analysis to this? Did you even look at the impacts of this? Because if you decide to cut, like, a huge chunk of the continent off with a giant fence that's gonna affect everything that affects everything time to get the blow torches out kids yeah that's what i would be doing yeah well the good news is emus are working on their their revenge <laughs> so i've got a couple feel-good stories about emus and how they're fighting back so let me tell you about peep so emus have a life expectancy of about 10 to 20 years in the wild and maybe 35 years in captivity it was a hot day in the early 1960s when a forest worker pulled up to Tamari Killeen's farm in Valencia Creek, Australia, leaving him with a small cardboard box containing two emu chicks. The family was known for taking in animals and caring for them, but they had never raised an emu, never mind two. And so as they raised these animals, they grew up together and they had always kept the house gate open. So if the birds wanted to just leave, they could, but they didn't. They were always happy to be there. Eventually, um, in 1990, the younger brother um, of the birds disappeared. But Peep hung around and he became best friends with a goat. But in 2017, Peep's BFF dies. So Peep is now 58 years old as of this year and is still going strong. Holy shit. So here's a picture from the farm in 1960. You can see Peep in the the left corner there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And here he is today. Oh, like this, this, um, these are siblings here that are on there. They, they, they've been around this emu since they were teenagers. <laughs> they grew up with it. 58. Oh, Aww. buddy. Yeah, and apparently he still seems healthy. Like he, like, you know, some of his feathers look a little raggedy, but seems healthy, healthy and happy. So, <laughs> oh my goodness. And so, yeah, emus are working on retaking their land as well. Even in your pubs. In Yuraka, Australia, the owners of the Yuraka Hotel were forced to ban two emus from their bar for bad behavior. (laughs) Kevin and Carol are the two troublemakers. Two friendly emus that have grown up in the small town. Apparently, the Yuraka Hotel's open door policy was just too much temptation for the wily couple. Their offense... They've been stealing things from the guests, especially their food. They'll stick their heads in and pinch toast out of our toaster. But the main reason (laughs) we ban them is their droppings. They're enormous, very large, and very smelly, and they create great stains. Gross. (laughs) So I guess they have an open porch on the outside there, and they've now set up a a rope crossing it so that the emus can't get in. And there's a sign there that says that emus have been banned from this establishment for bad behavior. Please let yourself in through the emu barrier and then reconnect it. Oh my god. Amazing. And you know, emus are actually now protected under federal uh, regulation legislation, which is cool, though that's not going to stop the fence from killing them. Um, and they're taking our, your town. So only a few hundred miles away from the now famous site of the emu war, Nanup, a small Australian town, population about 1,300, came under siege last year, and their captors just haven't left. Three families, family of emus have roamed the town now, somewhere between 20 to 40 birds, and when they had showed up originally, they came with their babies, who were only a couple inches now uh, tall, but now are six feet. The, the militia, this militia has the town split in two. One side 
are disgruntled are disgruntled residents whose rose bushes and fruit trees have been plucked. On the other side, we have all these people that say that the emus bring something unique to the town. Ultimately, the only action the town has taken has been the installation of signs about ta- about town. The birds are harmless to humans, but could cause traffic accidents for unwary drivers. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the great emu war. <laughs> Oh my god. (laughs) Had to put some feel good stuff at the end there after I started reading about the fence. Oh man, yeah, that's rough. Come on, Australia, what are you doing? It's Australia. (laughs) But but we have all of the power and and we have things we can do, we have technology, and yet you can't teach your farmers how to grow hydroponically. There you go. Yeah, I think there's so many other options that would be better for everyone. Rather than, hey, but let's build this giant wall. Just for, just pull a trump and build a wall. Great. God, Jesus, he couldn't even do that. So <laughs> They're getting further than he did. That's not a good thing. <laughs> no, I know. And that's a wrap. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Next week, tune in to hear Nathan explain how an Alaskan pimp with a taste for violence becomes one of the leading canary researchers of his time from a cell on the rock. And Hallie will be telling us about a woman whose online mental health and wellness social media has led to the completed suicide of at least two people and yet is still being praised by thousands. Do you have an idea for a story or topic that you want us to cover? Hit us up on Twitter or Facebook at The Human Exception through our email, thehumanexception at gmail.com, or through the form on our website, thehumanexception.com. All sources and links mentioned in this episode and additional information can also be found on our website. Have a wonderful weekend, and keep being exceptional, my humans. We also want to give a big shout out to Jack Reed, the musician who performed and composed our intro and outro music. His band, Nix the Scientist, launched their second EP yesterday, and really good. We hope you check it out. It can be found on Spotify or any other music streaming platform. In celebration of their release, here's the first title off of their new EP, Ideas and Notions.